Well, in theory, this is um, episode 22 of the thing that's not a podcast, that's just a voice note um, called First Draft. But it, the, the fact that it's got a title doesn't make it a podcast. It's just a voice note. Remember that. Um, but because last episode, 21, sort of finished very abruptly with me just like starting to cough unbelievably, the... Uh, it's a legacy cough of the third dose of the old the old cough that I had. Um, just a, just a just a sort of a gift to remind me that I had it like ages ago, <clears throat> because that that's how that episode ended. I don't know whether this really counts as as as, as a new episode, particularly because I'm just going to continue where episode 21 left off. So this could be 21A, is what I'm saying. Uh, do you care? Do I even care? A question that, that comes to my mind so often when I'm speaking. Do I care? Why am I saying this? What we're talking about was uh, was tips for writing. Because uh, about 10 days ago, I asked for your Ask Me Anything questions about the writing process or process. Um, little in-joke from episode 21 not a um and i was like i'm getting through the question so i'm just going to carry on where we left off if if you didn't listen to the last episode um this may seem like an abrupt way to start but go and listen to the other episode if you don't like it cj johnson right we're just carrying on cj johnson what are your thoughts on referencing language? Like talking about the language the folks would have been speaking, using terms, brackets, usually insults or endearments, from the language, etc. I have a historical fiction work going where I've done a ton of research and still I'm not sure what language these folks actually have been speaking to each other, so I'm guessing at it. But it might matter to the story, and it's making me super uncomfortable. That's a dope-ass question, CJ Johnson. So let me break it down, because I've been talking and thinking about this quite a lot recently. Because I've started doing publicity for my novel, Essex Dogs, which, as you all know, comes out in the UK on September the 15th. Big up, Essex Dogs, and uh, all who sail upon it. Go pre-order it, please, from the Broken Binding for International Deliveries or WH Smith for Half Price Signed Editions in the UK. Um, so, okay, writing fiction, historical fiction, yeah, this is, this is a big thing that people worry about. How do I render realistic dialogue what does realistic even mean and does realistic quote-unquote even matter so let's break it down a little bit i think when you approach a novel that's not set in the present i said in, said in the past you <coughs> oh there we go um it might be episode 21c coming your way let's try and get through it so you've got, you've got a choice to make before you start, and you've got to set yourself a rule. And it doesn't matter what the rule is, as long as you set it and stick to it and you're consistent. Okay, that's, that's going to be where I'm going to drive to with this long piece of advice. If we're talking as... Let, let's take as an example the 14th century, because that's where I set Essex Dog. So this is, this, is an, uh, this is an example of me that, from my real life. I've read books set in the 14th century which have attempted a sort of... to push towards a realistic rendering of 14th century speech. 
Now, let's try and give ourselves an idea of what 14th century language kind of sounds like on the page. It's not dialogue, it's poetry, but think about Chaucer's Canterbury Tales if you read it in the original sort of late medieval English. You can read it, um, but it's, it's tough going, at least to start with, and you're going to have to sit there with a glossary, probably, at least when you, while you're getting going, and the rhythms and patterns of speech, as well as a lot of the vocabulary, are going to be alien to a modern English ear. So, do you want to, in your 14th century novel, faithfully render all dialogue in as close to 14th century English, or the English of, say, Chaucer or Langland, as possible? You might want to, but I would, I would consider you insane. Um, unless this were a sort of super highbrow literary experiment with a projected readership of of three people. You might be doing that. I don't think you are. So don't do that. Or, so th- that's, that's like crazy deranged option number one. Slightly less deranged but still questionable option is an approach taken by a great writer called James Meek just as an example, in his novel To Calais in Ordinary Time, which very, very eagle-eared... Hmm, what's the equivalent of eagle-eared? Dog-eared, that's wrong. Smart listeners will know that I'm a big fan. If you've paid attention over the years, you'll know I'm a big fan of James Meek and To Calais in Ordinary Time. Read it on a flight to Tokyo in 2019 and it made me cry. Um... Great book. What Meek attempts in parts of that book is, is a sort of hybrid, modern, so modern syntax and cadence to a lot of the sentences with medieval vocabulary peppered throughout that you just have to kind of pick up and work out. It's a bit like when you start watching The Wire and you don't know what like all that, that drug slang means. And they just and the, What was the watchword of The Wire? Listen carefully? Something like that. Meek does that. So you could say, okay, my rule in my 14th century novel is that I'm going to stick to modern sentence structure and some modern vocabulary, but I'm also going to layer in loads of medieval vocabulary uh, and consider that verisimilitude. Well, that's not a bad idea, and I think Meek in To Call an Ordinary Time absolutely smashes it. Does it great, but that's a literary novel. And it's, it's pretty niche. I've given that to people who have not got it at all. There's another novel that pulls a similar tra- trick, even more so. That's said in the 11th century. I've talked about this a lot before. It's called The Wake by Paul Kingsnorth. And that's mad. That's full of... That's like a, a proper hybrid tongue. A sort of f- kind of pretend version... Oh, like a readable version of what 11th century English might have been like, except that it's also not. So neither Meek nor Kingsnorth are really genuinely recreating period language. They're giving you a sort of um, bastardised version of it that your modern ear can deal with just about if you really put the effort in. Neither of those are mainstream novels and they, they, you will turn off a huge portion of your readership simply by pushing towards authenticity even though you're not going to reach it so you might say to yourself hey that sounds cool that sounds like something i can live with creatively and want to do 
So, well, go ahead and do it. It has been done. But you might also think, wow, is the business of being a writer really to alienate so many of your readers? <laughs> hmm. Now, here's a third option. I think option one is bad. I think option two is okay, but commercially suicidal. Here's option three, which is commercially super viable, but I think creatively moribund. And that is to go with <clears throat> what I would call Hollywood ye oldie dialogue. And you would do this in a medieval piece. I've worked on, I worked on, let's take a show like Nightfall, the Templar show, which I worked on the first season of. We did this a bit in, in Nightfall, I think, as I recall. It's a bit of a feature of, of another project I admire massively, uh, George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones. It's, it's all over most Victorian historical, fi- you know, Victorian era medieval fiction. It's, it's, the, it's the Hollywood ye oldie, and it's the sort of, my liege, let us... N- uh, <laughs> how would you say it? Um, uh, let not us go there, my liege. <laughs> That's not quite right. That's do Monty Python. Um, uh, I think I think not. I <laughs> I think not, sire. Instead of, I don't know, sire. Um, it's a sort of poised, pretend, ye, generic ye oldie, in which you flip about the, the sort of verb structures in your sentences, and throw in some kind of generic archaic vocabulary, so that it definitely doesn't sound like anyone speaking modern English. However, it is totally intelligible to uh, a modern English ear, and it, it, it seems... It's history-ish. Uh, and it's the option that a lot of screenwriters will go for. It's an option that a lot of mass-market historical fiction writers will go for. Um, some of whom I admire a lot. But I do... I, I think it's bullshit. I think it's crazy bullshit, really, deep down. That's what I do think. I think it's crazy bullshit to do this. And it's phony baloney. And um, I don't like it. Because it's not, it's, it's, it's not the real deal. It's not even trying to be the real deal. It's just a sort of... It's, it's actually the historical equivalent as, of if you were like a very old-fashioned kind of 1950s uh, movie maker and you wanted some sort of tribes in, like, the, the sort of nat- generic native, non-white, non-Western place, and you wanted to give them some language, and they just went jibber-jabber-bubber-bleb-ooga-booga-bleeby-dleeby, you know, just gabbled baby nonsense. Uh, it, you, and you would just assume your readers would go, oh, yeah, I guess all the, all the foreigners speak like that garbage. Like, that would be... We'd consider that super offensive now. I don't think we consider the uh, I-know-not-my-liege approach to writing historical dialogue offensive because it's not in the same order of offensiveness, obviously. But it is pulling a similar trick. It is some crazy garbage. So I don't like that. Okay, so now I've told... So option one was insane. Option two was commercially suicidal. Option three was creative, creatively moribund. <laughs> Dan, are there any good options for writing dialogue? I thought you were supposed to be helping me here. I think a good way to do it is to, is to say, okay, 
I'm going to accept the impossibility of this task. I.e., I'm going to accept the impossibility of, of faithfully rendering historical language on the page. So I'm going to just set myself some very basic linguistic rules, which are no egregiously modern slang, a preference for uh, ultra-simplicity and plainness of, of language and directness of sentence structure, you know, try and avoid passive verbs and choose active wherever possible. Um, I'm going to have some... I'm going to, like, cheerfully be anachronistic with swearing. In Essex Dogs, I, I made a decision that I was going to use quite a lot of, of modern curse scheme. So, in the Middle Ages, no one's... Uh, People aren't, aren't rhythmically punctuating their sentences with the word fucking, like a lot of people do now. Um, but I'm going to use that. But then I also decided with Essex Dogs, what it would, so in order to give it some period uh, verisimilitude, I thought, what, 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 can I, what tweak can I give my essentially quite plain uh, modern dialogue, which is the equivalent of translation, effectively? You know, you've translated one language into another. That's the way I'm, I'm approaching it. Uh, and you, you operate according to the rules of translation, which is you give a faithful sense uh, in as clear a way as possible. And you can vary your, your styles of sentence between speakers in order to communicate character. But, it's, but you are essentially pretending that you're translating here. But I thought, I'm gonna, but I'm going to add a tweak. And the tweak I use in Essex Dogs, and your tweak can be anything... Um, but it is nice to have a tweak, a little signature to what you do. My tweak in Essex Dogs was I was like, okay, I'm going to use modern uh, curse structures, because this is a story that I, I run about soldiers who curse a lot, and I'm also going to use uh, medieval blasphemy cursing. So the way to curse in... And I think I've written about this on Substack before, so I'm not going to labour the point too much. The way to curse in the Middle Ages is via blasphemy. Um by God's toenail or whatever, or Christ's wounds, I decided to, I was going to lean into this, particularly with certain excessively foul-mouthed characters, and give them like a real uh, license to blaspheme in a roughly period authentic way. So that's what I constructed. Now, I'm not saying, hey, this is the, the optimal way to do it. I'm saying... This, for me, felt like the, the best balance between um, commercially viable prose and dialogue and some nod towards period authenticity. I set that rule and I, I think I've stuck to it. Uh, and I've, I've, the book is consistent. So if you don't like it, that's a little bit tough shit. But you don't have to like it. If you do like it, you will find that the book is is like is pretty faithful to its its intention all the way through. And I think that's all you can do as a writer is is say this is what I'm going to do and then do it. And so long as you don't mess your readers around by changing what you're doing all the time, then people won't mind. I don't know if that's helpful, C.J. Johnson. I think your question was better than my answer, but you know, 
I'm just, I'm just one guy in this crazy mixed-up world doing my goddamn best. Rona says, if you require a proofreader, I'm your woman. Oh, darn, I'm afraid. Uh, Rona's done a lot of fan fiction writing. Um, get the bones of an idea written down somewhere, then work on it whatever time you have to spare. Good luck to all aspiring writers. Oh, Rona's giving advice. Right. Well, thank you, Rona. You've, you've saved me a job. What's the hardest part of creative writing for you? Asks Andrew J. Describing scenery, how characters move from point A to point B in a scene, describing emotional states or feelings, something else. And how do you get past it? Good question. What do I find hard? Excuse me. <coughs> what do I find hard? Um, the thing I didn't find hard but I'm just neglectful about, I think, is the sort of the deep texture of scenes. So on my first draft of Essex Dogs, uh, my, the big note from my, ed- my brilliant editor, Laura Palmer, was, like, deepen the texture of the scenes, like more, more, more colour, more, more um, smells, more physical sensation, more, um, yeah, just, just kind of incidental detail. So my big work in the second draft of the book was to, like, just colour in a little bit. You know, I had a, had a sound plot structure. Uh, I had, by and large, character development was fine. Dialogue I was, I was happy with. Um, so it was just, like, deepening, particularly when you're with viewpoint characters, which in Essex Dogs are mainly a character called Loveday and a character called Romford, just, like, make it feel, you know, help communicate to the reader what it really, what it feels like to be them. So that's, and I, I, I didn't find it hard on the rewrite, but I just, I've got a bit of a blind spot for it. Well, I certainly did on my first draft. Uh, but it, I think, I think that, that would be different for everybody. Everyone's going to find one thing, at least that they, uh, they're not as immediately adept at as others. But so long as you, you, um, you realise it and you've got an editor who's going to tell you clearly and give you clear instruction as to what you, you need to do, that's what the edit process is all about. Eileen Crofts. I've scribbled various things throughout my life, but I, I have at last finished a whole, nearly finished a whole novel. I'm no spring chicken. What are the chances of finding an agent who won't just laugh at my age and tell me to self-publish? Any agent that laughs at your age can go and Uh, meddle with themselves i say eileen that any agent who who thought that was an issue uh wants shooting as they say in in the veterinary practice um that would be dismal that would be a hopeless agent and you wouldn't want them representing you go find an agent uh guy parney says warwick attempted Hold on. This isn't a writing question, Guy. I'm not answering that question. Not a bad question, but it's not a writing question. So it's a Wars of the Roses question. Wrong thread. Um, it's a very technical question about moving about from Joe Carroll. It's not directly writing related, but more setting of a historical accuracy seemed, seemed genuine. How did people... I'm, I'm going to edit... It's a very long question, so I'm going to just pick bits from it. My question is, how much did people move about month to month, season to season, etc.? Uh, and, and the context she, Joe gives... Go and read the, the original post if you want to see the full question. It's to do with The Last Kingdom, season five. People moving from Wessex to Northumbria. 
they seem to be moving a lot, but would they really be doing that? Well, I think, yeah, okay, I think I understand the question. Um, how much should people move in the Middle Ages? Well, you know, both a lot and not at all, so it depends who you are. There's certain people, your, the limits of your world would be, let's say, 20 miles around your village, and for others the prospect of travelling more than once from England to Jerusalem is is viable. So I think uh, it's it's not an easy question to answer in a general fashion. But if you found people wandering around woodlands and forest paths in the Last Kingdom unrealistic, um, well... I don't know what to say to you. I haven't actually seen that, that season, so I can't... I, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this question. I'm sorry. Um, Joy says, What is it like to see characters you created coming to life on a bookstore window? I'm not a writer by any stretch. I had a creative writing class in high school 40 years ago and exhausted my creativity then. Okay, well, this is this is in reference to the um, to Ashfield's, uh, aka our tiny windows, who's drawing the Essex dogs, who's painting the Essex dogs, main characters on bookstore windows across the UK. It feels absolutely rad. I love it. Ash is a genius, and we worked together. Or you know, he asked me lots of intelligent questions as he was creating portraits of the main characters, and I think they're absolutely tremendous. I love them. Love them. Um, and it feels great to see them going going on bookstore windows. You know, I I wrote my novel thinking, well, this is just my little bullshit, and who you know who? What if no one ever reads it? It doesn't matter. I managed to sort of get it out, and now here it is, actually up on not just in bookshops but taking over bookshops. So I'm 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 thrilled. I'm thrilled, and I'm thrilled for the characters who who seem to me to be independent individuals in their own right so I'm, I'm that's that's the that's what they've become ashley c says when it comes what comes first when it comes to getting publisher interest the pitch or the actual work i feel like i had a good idea during the pandemic but i couldn't get anyone interested now i'm actually writing but i'm still wondering do i send the work around when i'm done yeah i look there are lots of pitches and sometimes you'll get people hyped on a pitch and they'll buy and sometimes the hard-headed, as Mostef says, always got to see it to believe it. No, he doesn't say that. He says the hard-headed always got to feel it to believe it. Um, proof of concept. You know, sometimes a concept is, is like too much for people. Um, and sometimes you just got to show them that it works. Or, you know, or not. Uh, it seems like, continues Ashley, some authors get a deal before the work is done. I'm guessing they're the more established ones, right? No, not necessarily. Um, there's a ton of ideas I wouldn't be able to sell, but I believe I'd be able to do. Equally, the publisher I work with, we've bought lots of ideas from as, as proposals and outlines from first-time writers. That, that said, I'm speaking more about non-fiction here than fiction. Um... And you're right in a sense that the thing that you know about an established writer is not necessarily that the the idea is is better because they're an established writer. It's the sense that you have a bit more confidence that they are going to be able to write a book if they've done it before. 
everybody or lots of people say they've got they, they've got a good idea and they they've got the sort of wherewithal to write a book but those two things do not necessarily go hand in hand tons of people with good ideas who just can't write a book and so as a publisher your sort of your risk assessment might be well this person's got a good idea but do how do i know apart from just taking their word for it that they have got it in them to write the whole book so if you're just approached with like a, a short pitch, you might say, well, show me chapters, or you might say, show me the whole thing. And it would probably be more the sort of, well, are they able to write a whole book? Because it's not, it's not always easy. That would be right. Anyway, if you've got a good idea and you're writing it, write it and then show people. That's, I would, I would do that. Um... W.J. Small, my debut historical fiction was published earlier this year by a small traditional publisher. After a flurry of sales, they've slowed to a trickle, the sales. How to keep momentum going? That's the pattern of sales, my man. Uh, slash woman. Um, yeah, uh, my woman, sorry. Um, that's the pattern of sales, you know, you tend to, it's front-loaded, usually. And then it slows to a trickle, so that's usually when you write another book. Um... You can keep momentum going by constantly, you know, talking about social media, um, plugging away, visiting bookstores, asking if they stock it, asking them to stock it, signing copies if they stock it, all that sort of thing. But, you know, that's, like I say, keep publishing if you want to keep having the, um, the, the frisson of the flurry of activity. Um... But keep doing what you're doing, I would say. Okay, wow, look, well, here's Clara, and actually this is the last of the questions. I'd like to know how you get focused to write an actual story rather than having ideas. I guess tips on general motivation for any keen writers. I suppose we've covered some of this in the last two of these uh, these things, Clara, but how do you write... Well, you've, you've, everyone's got lots of ideas, or no, not maybe not everyone, but lots of people have lots of ideas... Uh, I think you've got to pick one and stick with it until either it's become a thing or you've realised it was never a thing and then you give up. But um, preferably the first of those two options. Um, Pick one and just start relentlessly attacking it, breaking down key scenes in your mind, writing them, doing character sketches, just develop, 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 develop and go deep on that one idea and put the others in a drawer saying, I'm not killing these, I'm not ditching them forever. They'll have their turn, but at the moment it's this one that's getting all my attention. That's probably it. As for general tips for motivation, it helps to tell people you're doing something because then that you've got to add a bit of pressure. You've got to, you've got to get a group of trusted kindly people that you know to be asking you gently from time to time how's that thing going and that i find will provide the motivation to um to keep doing that thing set yourself deadlines uh clear deadlines that are written down somewhere prominent that you're you will uh punish yourself psychologically if you don't meet or reward yourself psychologically if you do meet um 
set and, and we, we spoke about this last time break your big break the big tasks down into small tasks and uh, and acknowledge your enterprise effort and um and diligence and determination every time you you achieve one of those small goals so i think that's uh, that's my that's my top motivational advice right okay we're done we got there that's another 28 minutes and 18 seconds of high quality writing tips for you if you missed the first episode go back check it out if you've enjoyed this i'm glad let's do it again sometime what subject should we do next uh, i've got to go to a wedding now and then as of monday the 5th of september that being three days' time. I'm on book tour. So I'll be, I'll be posting on Substack from book tour. I might not do a post every day because that might get t- tiresome for people, but I'll, I'll be checking in with a book tour diary for a couple of weeks. Um, we're going to start in Edinburgh. That's Monday the 5th. Then I go to Grassington in North Yorkshire, Tuesday the 6th. Then I go to Manchester, Blackwells, Wednesday 7th. Then I go to Oswestry, book a bookshop, I think. Thursday, then I'm in Oxford, Blackwells, Friday, then I'm in, where am I, Chelmsford in Essex on Saturday, and then Brentwood Theatre Saturday night, then God knows where after that, there's a whole other week of it, at least. Uh, Hope to see some of you there, Um, if not, I know some of you across the Atlantic, or even further afield, I'll be there soon enough, don't wait up for me, but you know, Don't forget about me either. Okay, see you on the flip. Peace.